This podcast is part of the Planet Broadcasting Network. Visit planetbroadcasting.com for more podcasts from our great mates. The following episode of TOEFOP is rated MA. It may contain Batman references, time travel references, sexual references, lost trains of thought, and mild coarse language. TOEFOP advises that the program is not suitable for anyone under the age of 15 or anyone who enjoys succinct, coherent conversation that might actually have a point. Minors must be accompanied by a parent, guardian or priest. This is John Deke speaking. Everyone relax, this is Tofop. I'm Charlie Clawson. I'm Will Anderson. <laughs> Sorry, I coughed just as we were about to start and then I, I hadn't fully recovered from the cough when we started. I love that Mike Cal didn't slow his count in at all. <laughs> we just kept going. I thought we'd at least wait until you'd re- recovered. I know. And the, did... the, the, the more alarming part is the fact that I just went with it. <laughs> I mean, Isn't yeah. Isn't that like the Stanford, Stanford prison experiment? I just followed orders then. I didn't even think. Yeah, it's not like the Olympics and when the gun goes, you have to start running. You could have made your own choice in that situation and gone, you know what, I'll pause before I start the intro. Will's not ready. But you just heard one and went, fuck, I've got to start. (laughs) Everyone relax. I wasn't relaxed. I was choking to fucking death. It's just like my Pallovian response to authority. Must go. Okay. All right. Sorry. Jesus. (laughs) You can tell I'm an actor because I'm so used to being told where to go, where to stand and what to say. It's like, okay, all right, bang, go, do it. Right, you're on your mark. Three, two, and... <laughs> and <Action>. go. <laughs> maybe that's what Mike Howell should do when we do this show from now. Just call action. Well, maybe you should do it like they do it on TV where they count it down from five, but they don't say the last three. So they'll do that thing of going yeah. five, four, and then go. Yeah. <laughs> and we can do that thing that people do in that situation, which is nod their head like you just did then, like as the numbers are counted down, which does not look natural in any way. I, uh, for the uh, Good Friday appeal one year, they asked me to do the video board with the donations. And all I had to do was really just like, you know, refer to the, vis- the video board behind me. And, you know, we've got 10 bucks from at slash hats.com. Thank you so much for, you know, blah, 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 blah. I found it so hard to face the camera, thank people, turn back to the video screen, read the thing out without stumbling over like the hashtag. And because people's uh, like Twitter handles too, sometimes are deliberate misspellings of words. So I just kept turning my head back and forth between the camera and the video board, just like stumbling over my own words, then stumbling over other people's words. It was like a minute and a half of me going... It's one of those things where I think we should have a blanket rule that you don't read out people's Twitter handles. Like, I I just think that people's Twitter handles are often so garbled and the way that they're put there, even if it's their whole name, you can't tell where their first name, you know, finishes sometimes and when their last name starts. And it's one of those things where I'm just like, until we have a blanket, everybody has to have their real name on their Twitter account. Let's stop reading out. Because it's also great on a news program or something where they read yeah. some serious like point, but then the like the Twitter handle is something comical because it's Christmas, so they've changed their or Halloween, and they've changed their name to a spooky version of their name. So suddenly my yeah. name is and this is from uh, uh, Kill Anderson would like to weigh in on this debate. <laughs> 
What about when you go to a like a, new, a news website and there'll be some reaction to some event and it's like people on Twitter were going crazy and I'll just have like a random selection of people on Twitter and their reactions and I'm always like, what are they going to say? Is that that's just like you've just taken someone out of your comments section and and, and given like center stage? How come they right. are more important than anyone else in your comment section? Well, not even just that, but like there's a, a there's a lot of articles now that are just a selection of things that people said on Twitter, which is crazy. But B, like often these people have like no followers or anything. So it is just like essentially putting in the middle of your news story, here's what a rando yelled through the window as I was writing this story. <laughs> and then the other thing is that it's <laughs> then all the comments, essentially you're just starting a fight. Essentially you're putting their comments up there. So people who don't have Twitter can argue with somebody's tweet. Yeah, it's crazy. I, was then, in, I heard that um, it, often in sports journalism, but increasingly in tabloid journalism, because they're so under-resourced, when there's an issue they want to be a bit controversial, that journalists might have um, fake accounts. And so what they do is they have fake Twitter accounts, right. and then they tweet on this like issue or put this position forward so they can say, this is what people are saying on Twitter, and now I can write my article around it. I mean, that would be a completely what? unethical thing to do, but I've heard that might happen. It happens all the time with political parties or, you know, politicians where, you know, they'll post something on their website or on their Facebook page and then someone posing as like someone in their constituency will be like, what a great idea, you know, but they'll forget to have signed out from, you know, the office Facebook account. It's, like, it's kind of like when you can tell that someone has written their own Wikipedia page, like sometimes... I'll see like a, a you know a TV show and I'll go I wonder if that who that actor is and stuff and then I'll go and like oh either you have written it or, or a really bad publicist has written this yeah basically <laughs> like, like I wonder what that actor's up to now and then you read yeah. their Wikipedia page and you go oh editing Wikipedia <laughs> yeah but it'll be something like after catching attention in American Pie five it's like <laughs> no one set the world on fire in you know American Pie five. No, this guy actually played the pie. He's like the new yeah. Daniel Day-Lewis. He, he actually was a pie, an actual pie for three years preparing for the role. Have you, um, I don't know if it's out in Australia yet or if you have access to it, but have you seen that Gary Shandling documentary yet? The uh, Zen Diaries of Gary Shandling? I assume it's probably on Netflix in Australia at the moment as well, but I just haven't had time. But it's high on my list of priorities for me to watch because... It's amazing. I, I am a, such a huge fan of Gary Shandling's and um, I actually re-listened the other day to Pete Holmes, had him on um, you, Made, you Made It Weird. and uh, he I listened to the same one. Oh, really? Yeah, so I'd already yeah, heard yeah. it when it first came out, but I, I re-listened to the entire thing again uh, the other day, you know, because he reposted it because of the doco and I was just, yeah. yeah, I can't wait to see it. So you've seen it? Yeah, yeah, I watched the whole thing. Um, it's on HBO Go in the States. And I loved Larry Sanders growing up, but I'd sort of, you know, I didn't really know that much about Gary Shandling. But then after watching this documentary, I went back to the Kevin Smith interview. Have you heard that one? Kevin Smith did a really long chat with him as well when he was doing... I'm not sure um, if I have, actually. It, they reposted it up when he died as well. Uh, it was when he had a, a morning show with his wife. Gary Shandling pops around for like three hours. It's incredible. And the Pete Holmes one I listened to as well. And then I heard... Uh, the Pete Holmes, Judd Apatow, where they talked about the documentary. It is pretty, I mean, a lot of people are talking about online. I'm, this is not anything that anyone hasn't already said, but it's quite, it's profoundly moving in on multiple levels because he was a guy who kept uh, journals of everything. Like, you know, from when he started as a writer 
up until he died, he literally, you know, just has, you know, pages and pages of his innermost thoughts about every aspect of his life. And you sort of see this thing happen twofold where it is the growth of an artist, but it's also the growth of a human being and how those things intersect, you know, like starting off as a writer, you know, starting off as an engineering student, then deciding he wants to try writing comedy and then going from writing and deciding I want to do stand-up comedy and then into his TV stuff. And, you, you know, they, they keep going back to his journals to sort of say this is what he was feeling at the time. And there wow. is so much frustration and elation and self-doubt and stuff. Um, and then, I mean, I don't want to spoil it for you, but he the, dies it's so dense. That, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to spoil it to you, but he actually had been dead the whole time. The whole and time. And nobody knows who wrote the journal. <laughs> but there's this stuff in it where... Hey, guys, M. Night Shyamalan's to... done a uh, documentary about Gary Shandling. <laughs> You'll never believe the twist at the end. <laughs> yeah, there is this... There's a moment early in his career, I think it's between him becoming a writer and a comedian, or maybe it's when he becomes a comedian, where he gets hit by a car and... Uh, he has this sort of life altering experience where he starts to wonder like, why am I doing what I'm doing? You know? And so his career almost becomes a search for, cause he's, he was a Buddhist. So it's a search for inner peace by letting go of certain things, letting go of ego, letting go of having to be the funniest, the most successful. Okay. Well, but how about this, Charlie, in my reboot of yeah. this, if I'm going to make this into a movie, yeah. you're going to reboot the Zen diaries already. Yeah, it's like Gary Shandling actually dies in that accident. So when he gets hit by the car, Gary Shandling dies. But because he believes right. in Buddhism and in the idea of reincarnated, the premise of the whole thing is about a comedian who gets reincarnated as himself. So, you there know, the you idea go. of Buddhism is you live your life in one way and then you're reincarnated as something else because of the, the way you lived your life. He gets re reincarnated as himself and has to go on with his life, but it's not actually him, it's the reincarnation of him. It's like a Groundhog so Day-esque Buddhist play on the nature of life. Right, so he wouldn't have an awareness that at any point when he's reincarnated, that he's just at his second cycle, does he get to a point where he has awareness that he's been through this before? Uh, he probably, he, he probably the... meets some sort of friend who gives him guidance <laughs> and Morgan explains Freeman. some of the plot holes. Yeah. I think maybe what would happen in that scenario is he would get reincarnated because I think when you get reincarnated, you live a new life. It's not like you carry probably residual energy from your previous life, whatever it is. Speaking of someone who's never studied Buddhism or Hinduism or anything, they believe reincarnation. What, what I assume like Buddhism is from posters and stuff I've seen on walls. Yeah. In my version of reincarnation... You get reborn, but you don't have an awareness. You may have an affinity to certain places or things because you know it's it's in it's in your in your DNA or whatever. But I think in the, Gary Shandling gets reincarnated for the second time. But when he gets the accident moment, he doesn't die. He avoids the accident, and then that's when he goes on to become whatever he is to become. Well, that's what I mean. He dies in that moment, and he becomes the reincarnation of himself. And then the rest of the, yeah. his life, like you're saying, is that he has a familiarity with everything that's going on, but he doesn't understand it because he's not actually the original Gary Shandling. So his diaries are his way of trying to work out who this person is that he's kind of been thrust into the life of and why this person mm. is doing what they're doing. I mean, it did. I did think of you quite a bit watching this because there's a lot of similarities 
in the way he talks about his work and the way, I mean, the way I've seen you approach your work and the way he approaches his work, there is a kind of similarity and, you know, talk, the conversations we've had over the years about what you're trying to do with your stand up and where you're trying to take it to and your ambitions for it and stuff. I think, I think you'll identify a lot with it. I mean, I'm sure a lot of people as someone who is creative myself, like I identified a lot with the creative process and stuff, but I think specifically in his approach to stand up, because what it all really leads to is, and he talks about it in the Pete Holmes interview a bit is it's getting to a point where it's not so much about crafting a joke. It's about, being present and so honest and open in the moment. That yeah, that I, is... I, mean, I mean, it feels like somebody's made a documentary just for me. Like I've never yeah, met right. a person who's lined up for Judd Patel stuff. I've got to be honest with you. But this is the sort of thing where I'm like, yeah, you've keyly... I don't know if everybody else is going to like this, but if I think I'll like it because essentially yeah. if my dream would be, could some great fan of uh, Gary Shandling's have the power and aspiration to make a documentary about his creative process, sign me up. Yeah, and it's also beautifully made too, like filmically made and the way they transition between, you know, the journals and, and he, the interviews and all that kind of stuff. It's, it's, it's pretty remarkable. But it's just this, within all that beauty and all the inspirational stuff is also this, this melancholy. And, you know, he has some things that happen in his life, you know, where he gets into pits of depression and stuff. And that's the kind of beautiful message of the film is this parallel story they're telling about the birth of an artist and the birth of a man or the enlightenment of an artist and the enlightenment of a man is that he's sort of heading towards this point where he, he, his work intersects his life. He's not, he's not working to be the best at something or whatever. This is, this is the best reflection of who he is, of, of who he could be. You know what I mean? And yeah. so that, that really speaks to me because it's like when you spent, I've spent the last six weeks locked away in your apartment writing and I look at what I do and I don't know if it's any good and I, and I, I doubt myself and, and then you front up the next day and you have a good day and you pour your heart out and you're like, oh God, but what if someone reads this and they hate it? Like, you know, this is my deepest innermost thoughts and all this kind of stuff. And so to see someone go through that process and have it not, it's, it wasn't like it just was this upswing. He, this was a constant challenge with all of his increasing successes from being a you know being a hot writer to being a comedian to you know having his own show to Larry Sanders to everything beyond that all of those things had the same rhythm as the rest of his life it wasn't like once he became Gary Shandling it just all made sense and straightened out like he kept having to challenge himself and 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 look at his work and 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 ask himself why he's doing this work you know it would have got to a point where he didn't need to work where he had enough money you know but he would still go on stage and you know he would still keep notes every day and I mean you might look at it and go well this is a compulsion <clears throat> this is you know not normal or it's on the spectrum or whatever but even if it was he seemed to found a really healthy way of dealing with it you know I'm sure there's people who have the same thoughts as him who don't write them down or don't have an outlet or a way of expressing them, that must be incredibly sad, difficult. Uh, it sounds absolutely fascinating. Like it really does sound like, A, that I'm glad that somebody went to the effort of making the film, but B, that people are going to get to see that process. And so I guess what I'm saying, Charlie, is 
uh, when I inevitably die in the next couple of years, you have my full permission to make an awesome documentary about me. (laughs) (laughs) I was thinking that. And I was thinking, well, I don't have a lot of time to sit around waiting for Will to die. Might just speed the process up a bit. Um, mate, <laughs> Come visit I'm, you in your new Melbourne pad and push you down the stairs. I mean, I feel like it could happen any moment now. Like, I was messaging radio this afternoon. I'm going in to do uh, Mick Malloy and Jane Kennedy's show, and they asked me if I had a couple of topics. And every time I go in, they like they, they like you to tell them a couple of topics you might want to talk about. And, like, about three weeks in a row now, all my stories have been about my ill health to the point where their producer was like, are you okay? <laughs> And I'm like, no, clearly, if you've listened to this radio show, I am dying and quickly. Charlie's, Charlie's already storyboarded the documentary. <laughs> oh, God, can you imagine? Like, Amy comes to me, you know, after you've passed away and she's like, look, um, Will spoke to me, you know, he said that, you know, he really, he, his dying wish was for you to make this documentary. Here's all his materials, his you know, all these journals, everything, go for it. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> geez, this is a lot of work. Yeah, I mean, uh, <laughs> I'm going to have to re-listen to a lot of TOEFOP. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Can I just, look, I'll just, what if I just do a special, extra special, like, TOEFOP, just a half hour, I just tell people what I thought, my thoughts on him and stuff. That's pretty good. I'll give them, I'll give them the thumbnail version. <laughs> or... You make like a, you know, a sort of like two hour, you know, documentary special about my life. And then when people watch it, it's 95% about TOEFOP. <laughs> <laughs> or I take all the footage of you and I take it to a post-production facility and I just get them to CGI dicks into every performance, <laughs> <laughs> every, every gala, every stand-up show. You're just holding a big fluffy cock. Essentially, it's like an animated... It's Finding Nemo meets Drawing Dicks on the Herald Sun. Yeah. (laughs) I love that because there's literally thousands of hours of you. Oh, my God. Glasshouse grew in alone. I could put so many dicks in that. In fact, if you die, we'll start up a Kickstarter. It's like dicks for Will. Well, the Charlie, the interesting thing is a lot of those photos also have me at a microphone. Uh, they have me holding yeah. a microphone in my hand. I mean, some of them... Often your mouth is open. Exactly. That's your default kind of like... My hands are up in the air as if I'm holding two dicks. Like, there's so many opportunities for you to... But I want you to promise me, if you're going to put dicks in every single bit of footage, I want the rest of it to be a completely sincere, loving portrait to me. So I want the rest yeah. of it to play as like a really serious, like this thing. <laughs> but the only thing is that in every scene from there, you've got dicks and drawn them in. Uh, uh, I think that's amazing. That is a film there. And you don't do, you let like got- whoever like funds it talk you out. At, like, you know, they'll go, you know what? We'll give him the money. We really want the project. The ABC, for example. So the ABC, yeah, yeah. you know, are like, look, you know, he, he was on our network for 20 years in different ways. You know, we'd like to, you know, repurpose some of that old footage and, you know, flog him to death one more time now that he's dead. <laughs> and so they come to you, Charlie, and they say, we've got some money. And you're like, great, but I've got this idea. And every scene, I want to animate a little dick. And they're like, look, we're not keen on the dick thing, but, you know, we'll give you the money. And they go to each other. We'll be able to talk him out of the dicks. But... Don't be talked out of it. I want you to, yeah. that's, your, that's the hill that you die on. Yeah. 
Well, when you when you bequeath me, when you pass away and you bequeath all like, you know, your recordings and stuff, that's got to just have a contract there that you will have a CGI penis in your hands for all performance footage. Oh, yeah, that you can only replay performance footage of mine if there is a CGI penis in the footage. Yeah, <laughs> just flopping about as your hands moving around on stage. I love it. Intercut with really kind of serious talking head interviews, like people just like their memories of you. Uh, in in a, in this season of Gruen, I'm going to throw a few poses in that I haven't done before, just so you have some options. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Very, oh, as I'm getting to your job, there's one thing that Will was. He was very considerate when it came to... Very committed to a gag. Hey, we got, some, uh, we got some emails. This is great. This email thing is really paying off. Okay. I mean, it's paying off with the same three people who keep emailing back, but you know, hey. <laughs> That's not true. We've had more. We've got about five. We have, we have three regular emails and we have about six emails in total. But look, it's a good start. Uh, let's um, wrap up this monolithic epicure... Epicu- oh, can you say it? Monolithic epicureanism. Oh, yeah. So um, Blair Jinby was the person who wrote in last week with their theory that Siobhan Chuk was the time traveller, yeah. was the Tofot fan who became a time traveller. And so Blair has written in, just a little follow-up, just want to say a couple points. Uh, firstly, we pronounced the name Ginby. He said it's actually pronounced Jinby. But please, thank you for not saying Gibney. Rebecca is the bane of my family's existence. I like to think the actual bane, like that she constantly appears in a mask and threatens to blow up where they live. Uh, remember, they, it was like size 15 font. Uh, the font size wasn't completely, uh, was completely unintentional. I typed it on my phone, copied and pasted it. I couldn't fix it, but I'm glad it worked for you. Do you remember that uh, Blair wrote Will with two L's and then singularized to one L when you'd left Gippsland? Yes. And we're like, oh, isn't that clever? Ooh, clever boy. That was an accident. <laughs> I feel like Blair can just like, you know what? Sometimes in life, mate, there's going to be a bit of serendipity. Sometimes people are going to ascribe better intentions to your actions than the ones that you thought you were going with in the first place. Just take it, mate. Just take it. Why have you written us a letter to point out that both of the things we complimented you about were accidental? <laughs> Uh, Charlie, thank you for saying it was well-written. It made my wife's eyes roll so much, I'm pretty sure she saw her own brain. <laughs> she isn't a teabagger. So thought I was completely stupid getting all fanboy by writing you an entire email on my phone. So it was nice to get some validation. Ah, marriage. Love her. <laughs> I don't know if there is a sarcasm font, but I believe it would have been employed there. Oh, uh, that is, that could not be more, that's like in four words, you've done a, like a little tiny, beautiful poem, a haiku about the nature of like relationships. Yeah. Um, marriage <laughs> lover. <laughs> hey, Will and Charlie, this is from David Council. Which movies or TV shows do you think would be improved by substituting characters from another movie? For example... What if Grand Moff Tarkin in Star Wars was replaced by Colonel Clink from Logan's Heroes? Or if Doc Brown from Back to the Future was replaced by Frankenfurter from the Rocky Horror or Dr. Strangelove? I reckon I haven't seen Ready Player One yet. 
but I imagine this kind of shit will be happening a lot more. Like you'll be getting, you'll be getting like, you know, icons from different eras in the same film and stuff. Indiana Jones, like vintage Indiana Jones takes on whatever, you know, Captain America or something. Yeah, I guess that you could just really also just remake movies. Instead of rebooting the movie with the same character, you could reboot like, you know, the Indiana Jones franchise, but Indiana Jones is a Terminator. <laughs> yeah. That's actually a really good idea. But do you think, what, what do you call this? Is this fan fiction when you take, is there a name for it? There's a name for it, isn't it? Where you, where you take like the X-Men to outer space. Uh, yeah, probably. What do you call probably it? there's a name is for it. it. Fan, maybe just well, fan, it's kind just of what fan fiction, fiction is. It's a mashup of some kind, I imagine. Do you feel like we are stuck in a, like, are we stuck in a pop culture kind of bubble at the moment where we're not moving on from Ghostbusters, Indiana Jones, all these 80s icons? Or is it just because that age bracket is now controlling the media and we'll move on? Like, where are the new... I suppose Marvel, the new, they're the new kind of icon heroes, aren't they? Yeah. They're, John Wick. Yeah, but even they are like heroes <laughs> from our childhood, apart from John Wick. Imagine if you were a kid growing up loving being John Wick. But like, you know, well, the Marvel guess, heroes was, are childhood heroes still. Who's the latest big like franchise uh, character? Um, like Pirates of the Caribbean, Jack, Jack Sparrow, I guess, was one. Jack Neo Sparrow. Matrix. Yeah. Um, yeah. What about... Um, Recently. What about the Fast and the Furiouses? Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, they're the most popular, definitely, but they right. are the least interesting character types. Like, so you've got the bald one with the deep voice. The guy, <laughs> just, the guy like, who does everything for family. He loves family. That's what I know about him. Familiar. Yeah. It's my family. And then you've... I can't... I try so hard to enjoy those Fast and Furious films. I know... I should. I, I love lots of dumb stuff. I love wrestling. Like it should be right up my alley. But I, there's something that annoys. They're so stupid. I think it annoys me. Like, I, have you heard people say, "Oh, they, you know, this is a bit of fun, and you can watch them." And I, I get annoyed, and I and I don't want to. Oh, I the last three or four I've quite enjoyed. Before that, I was indifferent to them. But I must admit, I jumped on board a little bit. You know, once The Rock got involved, you got The Rock. Yeah. You've got, uh, you know, Vin Diesel. You've got um, old mate Jason Statham. Like, I mean, yeah. there's that funny they're guy funny. in the car. The, the funny... But they're not, though. They're not funny, those there's guys. Not, there's Rodriguez. What's her name? But I guess it's just... I mean, I don't know why I have a problem. But the idea that these guys were criminals, right? <clears throat> and their... Oh, that's right. Was... I forgot that. Because <laughs> now yeah. they're like secret agents or something. <laughs> Yeah, but not only that, but secret agents who get injected into missions in which having a customized hot rod yeah. is essential. Like I saw one where they like the film starts with them parachuting like a fucking charger like into a woodland area. It's like, wouldn't you all be much better in like RVs or something? Like, why do you? That seems. Why do you need a bloody Nissan Pulsar <laughs> to drive across the ice? Like, I mean, surely there's a much more efficient way of of you know. Whatever this espionage well, mission is. What I love about it as well is like, is that? Like, I love that they don't have to pretend that they're going undercover in these cars so they're all nondescript or black or camouflage or whatever. They just rock up to like Antarctica or whatever to drive over <laughs> some white ice in like a bright red sports car. <laughs> yeah, there's, 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 there's a scene in one of them, I don't know where. Kurt Russell takes them into like a warehouse where they're prepping all the cars and it's literally like 
in the theatre I was in, you could hear the car lovers ejaculating because clearly they have stacked this scene with all these Easter eggs for car lovers. Like there's like a, you know, 1963 Ferrari. There's only 200 of those and there's all this and it's all that. And it's like, this is dumb. I'm not into this. Well, I think that um, they actually named the franchise after how uh, car people react when they see cars. They masturbate fast and furiously. <laughs> hey, Will and Charlie. This is from James Samet. James Samet. 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 James Samet. <laughs> hey, Will and Charlie. I don't know whose name I should put first there. I always put Will's better. I think it just sounds better, Will and Charlie. Charlie, Charlie and, Will? and Will? I think Will and, Will and, Will and Charlie, I think that sounds better. Don't you think? Charlie and Will. Charlie and Will's harder to say for some reason. I think it's because it's the open-ended Charlie and then an and, whereas you've got a hard L to an and. Will, Will and, and Charlie. Yeah, except then it sounds a little bit like you're going to say my whole name. Will and uh, Charlie. Charlie and Will. Charlie and Will. Will and Charlie. Charlie and Will. Will and Charlie. Will and Charlie. I like. I Make sure you put true. this bit in the ducko. I think it's a high point of our podcasting career. Make sure you include this moment where we repeat our own names back and forth in a different order and then come to no conclusion over which is better. Oh, I just need to take a snapshot <laughs> of my laptop because I'll just show you. This is just a sample still of uh, what I could do in the documentary. Just put a cock right where that microphone is. <laughs> too easy. God, Mike House, whether you've been recording all the video of all these podcasts, we're going to have too much material. It's going to have a bigger budget than Ready Player One, all the CGI dicks that'll be in this documentary. Do you remember that bit where he was just saying Charlie and Will, Will and Charlie, but there was a giant <laughs> penis in front of it? It's an interesting choice. <laughs> Very lovingly um, made, though, that documentary. Very lovingly made. <clears throat> hey, Will and Charlie. Loved your chat about Macca's characters. It's a deep, dark world there. Yes, it was. That's uh, from two episodes ago, or maybe three episodes ago. You can find that in our library. Go to toefop.com to hear that and other great episodes of Toefop with Charlie and Will. <laughs> Will and Charlie. All right. I stumbled across this Wikipedia article and thought you could spend a Toefop segment on just unpacking it, talking about it, etc. Okay. The headline is Inventors Who Are Killed By Their Inventions. Oh, have we talked about this before? Have we? I feel like we've talked about inventors who were killed by their inventions before. We talked about the... Maybe like very early on, wasn't yes. it? We talked about the guy because who built Because that guy who jumped suit. off the... Yeah, he built the Eiffel flying Tower. suit. And that was inventors who had been killed by their inventions. Let me see if I can guess some of them and we'll see how close right. I am. Well, I've got, I've got the web page up, so... Okay. So right. the Segway guy, or he didn't invent it. He was the owner of the company, but he died on a Segway. Uh, Jack Daniels, or the, like the dude from the Jack Daniels factory who kicked a barrel of Jack Daniels and infected his toe and like died to death from Jack Daniels. Um, the guy who invented the flying suit and jumped off the Eiffel Tower without testing it. He's dead from his own invention. Uh, and uh, that's all I can remember. There's, well, there's lots here. So I'm sure those guys are included. I think we have talked about this because the photo that comes up is the one that we had paste on our Facebook page when we first started this podcast, which is Franz Reichelt uh, in his parachute suit. <laughs> so we must have done this before. Do we not go back? No, let's go back. I mean, there might be some different right. ones. I and can't if, remember. If we can't remember, then... Yeah. Okay. So direct casualties, automotive. Sylvester H. Roper, inventor of the... Uh, steam-powered bicycle died of a heart attack 
or subsequent crash during a public speed trial in 1896. It's unknown whether the crash caused the heart attack or the heart attack caused the crash. <laughs> oh, oh, man. How many dicks does he get in his documentary? Uh, if you give someone enough roper, they'll <laughs> kill themselves. William Nelson died in 1903, was a general electric employee, invented a new way to motorize bicycles. He then fell off his prototype bike during a test run. <laughs> Francis Edgar Stanley died in 1918. He was killed while driving a Stanley steamer automobile. He drove his car into a wood pile while attempting to avoid farm wagons traveling on the side of the road. Is that, that's not really killed by his car. Does that count? It's well, not like I'm it was a test. I mean, I guess he was killed by the wood, but by driving his car into the wood. Yeah, but it wasn't a failing of the car. It was a failure of him. Well, He yeah. tried to avoid an accident. Yeah, I understand what you're saying, but he was still killed in, in the hands of his own invention, in a car crash. I mean, you can't blame the wood. The wood was just sitting there by the side of the road. Hey, mate, all, all car lives matter. <laughs> uh, Fred Dusenberg was killed in a high-speed road accident in a Duesenberg automobile. Okay, aviation. This guy whose name I can't pronounce, Johari, Ismail Johari, a Turkic scholar from Farab, attempted to use flying wooden wings and a rope. It's called the Birdman Rally, mate. <laughs> he leapt from the roof of a mosque in Nishapur and fell to his death. That was in 1010. That guy was 900 years, 970 years before his time. Like, if he'd waited almost a thousand years, he could have entered the Birdman Rally, he probably would have won. Hey, uh, do you mind if I just uh, take a pause? Uh, my phone was ringing. I just yep. want to see if it's Amy. Yep, no worries. Jean-Francois Pellatre de Rosier was first known fatality of an air crash when his Rosier balloon crashed on the 15th of June, 1785, while he and Pierre Romain attempted to cross the English Channel. Can you imagine being on a balloon with Pierre Romain and Jean-Francois Pellatre de Rosier? <laughs> what, what, do you think they have TOEFOP-type discussions? I imagine you've got to have some small chat on a balloon crossing. Uh, and I also imagine being Frenchmen with flamboyant-sounding names like that, they had a lot of wine and cheese. I bet it was like, yeah, you know, definitely. that's probably what crashed them. They brought too much camembert. Yeah. It was a thing back then too. Like The balloon, it cannot built, camembert it. <laughs> when you built a vehicle, whether it was like a balloon or a boat or a car, back then the first thing you'd be like, well, where do I put my alcohol and where do I put my cigarettes? <laughs> I need someone to be able to smoke and drink. Most of these people were killed in these accidents early on by their cigarette catching fire on the balloon or spilling their drink <laughs> overboard. Otto Lilenthal died the day after crashing one of his hang gliders. Uh, Franz Richelt, we know, he uh, jumped off the Eiffel Tower wearing uh, a suit that he thought would make him fly. There's still, like, there is a YouTube footage of that. It was, like, 1912. Yeah. You can find it online. It's, it's weird. It's a snuff video, but because it's old snuff, I guess you can put it on YouTube. Yeah. Because you literally see his body fall from the top of the Eiffel Tower and hit the ground. I mean, I think it's a cautionary lesson. It's been put on the yeah. internet as a warning to idiots everywhere all around the world. This could happen to you. 
It's kind of adorable in a way, really. <laughs> when you watch it, like if you put some old timey piano music to it, someone should do a boomerang of it, like for Instagram, where he actually goes back up again as well. He goes down and then bounces back up. That'd be much more charming. Maybe that's like some shepherd fairy Banksy type shit, man. Like if you if you went to like a street art installation, that's what it would be. Like his death just like on loop boomeranging man it'd be a comment on how nowadays we've just lost empathy and we see a man falling to his death man we just put it on social media man our lives are a loop man i mean gary shandling was reincarnated man <laughs> i was with this guy until he, until he started muttering about gary shandling being reincarnated <laughs> No, I, I agree with that. I think there's something... I reckon the statute of limitation should be, would this person be dead by natural causes by now anyway? Yes. Yes. Oral Vlaiku died when his self-constructed airplane, which he named after himself, <laughs> failed during an attempt to cross the Carpathian, Carpath Carpathian Mountains by air. I mean, that's... What do you call that? Hubris, right? <laughs> He literally sailed too close to the sun. Or probably not close enough, as it turns out. No, not close enough. You're a fucking mountain, mate. Henry Smolinski was killed during a test flight of the AVA Misa, a flying car based on the Ford Pinto. <laughs> That's hubris. <laughs> the sole product of the company he founded. He founded a company. He built the Misa. On its debut flight, it crashed and killed him. Apparently, there's a whole dollop episode about that guy. The guy who killed himself trying to build a flying car. Michael Dacre died in 2009 at the age of 53, testing his flying taxi device designed to permit fast, affordable travel between regional cities. Uh, off air, you mentioned probably science. I'm on the latest episode. And we do talk a lot about, um, at the, right at the end, we talk about uh, um, uh, airborne travel in the future. And uh, uh, um, uh, just how dangerous, like we all dream of like jetpacks and hoverboards and stuff, but you get like more than six feet above the ground, you can have a fatal fall from that height. Right. And also there's no roads, you know, like that bit in Back yeah. to the Future where he's like roads where we're going, we won't need roads. Yes, you will. Roads will be equally as important in the air as they are on the ground. Otherwise people will just crash into each other. And you think on the ground's unregulated. If there's no fucking lanes and stuff, <laughs> the sky is going to be full of fucking sky uber cowboys who's just some guy who's got their own fucking flying taxi who's decided to... I mean, of all the limited... like That's a guy who is held back by his own limits on his imagination because he's like, I'm going to build a flying aircraft that's affordable for everyone oh my god what are you going to do with this amazing creation i'm going to be a taxi driver <laughs> <laughs> in the world of chemistry andrei zelemanov zelezenov zelina nizovov whatever a soviet scientist was i would like by the way if in... that was his whole name you hadn't said his last name three different ways it was like a hyphenated last name and it was each of those <laughs> yeah. things it was like, um, you know, Tony, 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 where they were all spelled differently, but this one's all spelled the same, but pronounced differently. All right, I'm going to have to do it like I'm in primary school. I'm going to have to sound it out. Andre Zeleznyakov. There you go. Zeleznyakov. Andre Zeleznyakov. Andre Zeleznyakov. I can't even say monolithic epic. And I'm an actor, for God's sake. I did vocal exercises today. I should be better at this. You should be better at this. 
He was a Soviet scientist developing chemical weapons in 1987 when a hood malfunction exposed him to traces of the nerve agent Noviok-5. He spent weeks in a coma, months unable to walk, and years of failing health before dying from its effects in 1992-93. How can he have died? It says 1992-1993. How can you die over a year? Did he start? I mean... You die on one of the sides. You can't literally die on the stroke of midnight, December 31st, can you? Maybe. Like, that's the only way. Maybe time you literally he died as they got to one and they announced his time <laughs> of death. <laughs> <laughs> that's why he died. Because all the nurses and doctors were counting down to midnight on New Year's Eve. They weren't paying attention to his little heart monitor. Beep, beep, beep. Five, four, three, two. One. Or maybe he thought he Happy New- maybe he thought they were counting him down. Maybe he was like yeah. seeing the light and then he started hearing somebody count him down and he thought, well, it's time to go. I just love in that moment where they all wish each other Happy New Year and they kiss and hug and blow their party poppers and then they just turn around and just see a doctor go, uh, time of death, 1992-93. Or there's a doctor trying to give him mouth-to-mouth resuscitation and they all think that the doctor's kissing the patient. He's making... <laughs> Industrial. William Bullock uh, invented the web rotary printing press. Oh, oh, this is gonna this is not gonna end well, is it? Several years after its invention, his foot was crushed during the installation of a new machine in Philadelphia. The crushed foot developed gangrene, and Bullock died during the amputation. Again, that's more like manslaughter. That's like inventors who are manslaughtered by their inventions, not murdered. Involuntary manslaughter. Like it's really an accident yeah. that's caused a death, right? You know, it's more a, it's a, more a safety issue. It's more something you need some men in high vis and some hard hats to fix. It's not really something, it's not a murder. It's not a premeditated murder. <laughs> in maritime, Henry, Henry Winstanley built the first lighthouse on the Eddystone Rocks in Devon, England between nine, uh, 1696 and 1698. During the Great Storm of 1703, you remember that? Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, I measure most <laughs> things from the Great Storm of 1703. I have a very complicated calendar system that really confuses my diary because I don't exist, think any time existed before 1703. The Great Storm, I call it. Uh, the lighthouse he was in was completely destroyed with five other men inside. No trace of them was found. Now, is it the first light? He died in a lighthouse that he built. Right. Is that an invention? Like, surely people die in their homes all the time. You know what I mean? Homes that they've built. Does that count? Well, or was he the inventor of lighthouses? It's interesting to me what you just said, Charlie, which is that what we're realising here is that in every generation when you're inventing something new, like, there's going to be a point where some people probably die in the process of it. We've just seen it with the, uh, you know, the automated car. You know, there's been, uh, you know, people die by these sort of, you know, driverless cars. So... Which we also talk about on Probably Science, uh, just another little plug. So I would suggest that when the first person built a house, do you reckon the first one nailed it? Like, you know, I mean, I'm talking the first person who ever was like, no, 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 we're going to build like a, a house. Something that isn't like, you know, a tent or a, you know, a cave that we've turned into a house or whatever, but we're literally going to construct you know, a house in the early stages of that, like heaps of the roofs must have fallen in on people or the walls must have like collapsed on people and stuff. They didn't have apprentices and shit. Like if you're the first builder, right? So (laughs) like, how did they persist with that? that? 
you are building the first house in humanity's history, and I bet the tradie still turns up late. Yeah, first day. He's like, uh, sorry, mate, uh, we, can, we get started on that build in May. And then you're like, what What other jobs have you got on? This is the first house in humanity. Mate. Oh, I know, mate. We just won't be able to get around to it till uh, at least May. Well, the other thing is, mate, parts. It's just really hard to get parts for something that hadn't been invented yet, so we're struggling with parts. <laughs> Horace Lawson Hunley, a Confederate marine engineer and inventor of the first combat submarine, the Hunley. The tip here being, if you name the invention after yourself, it's going to kill you. <laughs> he died during a trial of his vessel. During a routine test of the submarine, which had already suffered one accident, Hunley took command. After failing to resurface, Hunley and seven other crew members drowned. Ooh. The Navy salvaged the submarine and put it back into use. <laughs> Oh, I mean, well, at hey, least guys, there's a Hunley still kicking good news about. Is, good news is you're still going on your submarine mission. I have some bad news. This one actually killed the guy who invented it, who wasn't able to control it. Oh, and seven other people. Good luck at sea. In the world of medicine, Alexander Bogdanov was a Russian physician, philosopher, science fiction writer, and revolutionary of the Be Be uh, Be Belarusian ethnicity, of Belarusian ethnicity, who experimented with blood transfusion, attempting to achieve eternal youth. Or at least, hang on, what's, uh, uh, this is 1928, my God. Yeah, I think this guy's a <laughs> I was vampire. Thinking this would be like the, no, I thought this was like the Middle Ages or something. This is not that long ago. It's yeah. less than 100 years ago. A oh, hundred years ago was the Middle uh, Ages, mate. We have, we have transformed this world, not always for the better, but very quickly. He experimented with blood transfusion, attempting to achieve eternal youth or at least uh, partial rejuvenation. He died after he took the blood of a student suffering from malaria and tuberculosis who may have also been the wrong blood type. <laughs> I mean... That's adding insult to injury, like it's bad enough it's got malaria and tuberculosis in it, but it's not even the right it's not even your drop, mate. <laughs> Thomas Midgley Jr. was an American engineer and chemist who contracted who contracted <laughs> contracted who drew up contracts for polio at the age of fifty one. Leaving him severely disabled, he devised an elaborate system of ropes and pulleys to help him lift him out of his bed. He became accidentally entangled in the ropes and died of strangulation at the age of 55. However, he is more famous or infamous for two of his other inventions. The, the, the tetrithyl lead, an additive to gasoline, and chlorofluorocarbons, CFCs. How is that related to how he died? It isn't. They're just saying that he also invented some other things. He was an inventor. Yeah, but how did he... Oh, I mean, but that invention, the ropes and stuff he built, did that go into popular use? No. Or was that just they're, like they're, no, they're saying wacky, he was, wacky he, Thomas Midgley's at it again? Yeah, and also I'm not sure that he actually died by accident. I think it was a Michael Hutchinson-style situation. He'd found out yeah, that right. he could, he could auto-erotic asphyxiate himself on his ropes to pass some time while he was in hospital and it all went wrong. I mean, I am that kind of guy who, if I have to change a light bulb, I take over like the poof and then I stand a bar stool on it and then I put some phone books on top of the bar stool and then I climb up and I try and stand on top like swaying around as I try to reach the light bulb in. I didn't invent this stool or the poof, but you know, it's going to lead to my death. Physics. Sabin Arnold von Schocke 
Saban Arnold von Sochocki. <laughs> Sable Arnold von Sochocki. And that's the right one. Is Saban that? Arnold von Sochocki. He invented the first radium-based luminous... Lum, lum, I can't read. Saban Arnold Sochocki I like to think that the person who sent us this didn't send us because they wanted us to talk about inventions that had killed their inventor. They sent us this article because they knew you would not be able to pronounce any of the people or the inventions. <laughs> Saban Arnold von Sochocki invented the first radium-based luminescent paint but eventually died in, 90, uh, died in 1928 of a plastic anemia resulting from his exposure to radioactive material. Mary Curie invented the process to isolate radium after co-discovering the radioactive elements of radium and polonium. She died of aplastic anemia as a result of prolonged exposure to ionizing radiation emanating from her research materials. The dangers of radiation were not well understood at the time. Now that one, there's no, that's not like an ironic death. Like, that is an imperceptible death. Like, you know, they're breaking an atom down to like its, you know, smallest particle. You didn't know what you're going to release by, you know, delving that deep. No, and they and she kind of had a, like, discovery as she died, which was that radiation poisoned you to death. <laughs> Publicity and entertainment. Carol Susek, or Sukek, no, it'd be Susek, was a Canadian professional stuntman who developed a shock-absorbent barrel. He died following a demonstration involving the barrel being dropped from the roof of the Houston Astrodome. He was fatally wounded when his barrel hit the rim of the water tank that was meant to cushion his fall. <laughs> So he built the shock-absorbing tank. He just didn't land it in the right spot. Again, it was the water tank that, that killed him, not the bloody barrel. The barrel's fine, mate. <laughs> yeah, have a go. Yeah, the last guy died, but you'll be right. <laughs> mate, we've, the good news is that you're back in a submarine, but the, the even better news is we've got you six of these shock-absorbent barrels for battle. <laughs> oh, so did they save the last guys who wore them? Oh, no, they all died. Oh, they all died. They kept hitting they kept hitting the edge of things when, when they jumped out. Well, they should be fine in a submarine, so good luck to you. Railway. Valerian Abakovsky was con- constructed the Aero Wagon, an experimental high-speed rail car fitted with an aircraft engine and propeller traction. It was intended to carry Soviet officials. On the 24th of July, 1921, a group led by Fyodor Sergeyev took the Aero Wagon from Moscow to the Tula collieries to test it with uh, Abakovsky. Abakovsky on board. They successfully arrived in Tula, but on the return route to Moscow, the aero wagon derailed at high speed, killing everyone on board, including Abakovsky, who was only 25. Wow, he invented a fucking train at 25. What have you ever done? Um, Lived. I mean, it's not my problem, Charlie. <laughs> You're Abbe the one who's going to have to make the documentary about me. <laughs> <laughs> Dicks. Max Velia invented a liquid... I won't even call it Will Anderson, like... You know, the thoughts of Will Anderson. It's just going to be called dicks. And dicks will be spelt out in dicks. <laughs> CGI dicks. <laughs> Max Vellia invented liquid-fueled rocket engines as a member of the 1920s German Rocketeering Society. <laughs> on the 17th of May, 1930, an alcohol-fueled engine exploded on his test bench in Berlin, killing him instantly and that takes us to the end of people who were killed by their inventions uh a segment that was brought to you by james summit to be like james email oh god hang on to be like james 
send your questions to email tofot at gmail.com and in the subject line write, hey, tofot. Why are you laughing? <laughs> the smooth professionalism of this show. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> the way that you tried to remember that email address was like, you know those kids in that movie Spelling Bee? You know, the competitive yeah. spelling <laughs> documentary. I'm writing it in my palm. <laughs> that was you <laughs> trying to remember. You had to use it in a sentence so you could remember what it was. Well, no, the problem is it's hard to say. I didn't think of this. When I came up with a Gmail account, emailtofop at gmail.com, I never thought that at some stage I'd be telling someone, send an email to email tofop. You know what I mean? It's just, it's an awkward sentence. I didn't think it through, Will. Well, you should have thought it through, Charlie. That's what I'm hearing. But then again, we've had that email address for about six years and we've only started using it. So I guess it was. <laughs> we get a lot of emails from Nigerian princes. <laughs> they were like, what if the Terminator was in Indiana Jones? We've got one more email right, before good. we go. And we'll finish up. And this is, uh, some people are turning this uh, segment into, let's remind Will about the past. Yeah. But this is not, this is not a, a. This is a story that you've told on stage. I believe you even told it at a live TOEFOP. Okay. But this guy needs some. He he needs some. He needs some closure. Okay. This is from. Hang on. <laughs> no, it's from Philip Drummond. I was like, is this guy already written in? It's from Philip Drummond. Hi, Charlie and Will. He guys. He puts Charlie first. Isn't that funny? Isn't that funny? <laughs> Interesting. <That's true>. <laughs> <laughs> I've always wondered about one unfinished story with the expanded Tofop Dum Dum Club universe. In the Dum Dum Club episode 111, this is like, I feel like Tofop is Star Trek or something and you and I are at some comic convention and some guy's like, uh, excuse me, uh, in episode 111, when you spoke about this, did you mean... No. By the way, I highly encourage that sort of correspondence. If you want to send us messages to Hey Tofop... Uh, Email tofop at uh, gmail.com uh, with the headline, Hey Tofop. And they want to be things like, I was just listening to this episode and I have this specific question about this story you told or whatever. Like proper, you know, nerd. That's a great idea. I love that. I would love nothing more than that. Yeah. To go back to a detail we yeah. missed or a story we didn't finish or something that you want to clarify. I love nothing more than that. I highly encourage it. Good luck to you, Philip. And thank you for emailing <laughs> us in. Will told a charming story about how he met a Canadian traveller in a cafe in Melbourne. When Will met the traveller, she had only one day left in Australia before returning to Canada. The problem was that she had exhausted all of her travel funds, did not know how to pass the time before taking a flight home. In a romantic gesture, Will took it upon himself to give uh, her a tour of Melbourne, which included a number of free sightseeing activities. The day ended with an emotional goodbye at the airport where Will and the traveller shared a kiss. Is that right? Oh, that sounds right to me. Familiar. Yep. That's right so far. Okay. It's an amazing too that he's sending this email to us who know the story, but he's recapping it beautifully. Like for those who got here late. I think Charlie, if uh, people have learned one thing from this podcast, particularly in the last couple of episodes, is that we're the worst people to ask about our own lives and conversations. <laughs> <laughs> Shortly after the chance encounter, Will decided to travel to Canada to visit the traveler. The trip to Canada featured a stopover in Japan where, this where the conversation on Little Dum Dum Club got sidetracked. Okay. In Japan, Will met a woman 
in a bar of a capsule hotel, Will told the woman that he was traveling to Canada to retrieve the bodies of his deceased parents, whom had died in an adventuring accident. The woman revealed that her dad had died in a similar accident. Will was caught in a lie, and soon the newly acquainted uh, started to hit on Will. This put Will in a tense ethical dilemma. Anyway, the romantic story about the Canadian traveler was never resolved. What happened when Will visited Canada? Were they able to rekindle the magic of that fateful day in Melbourne, or did they fizzle out like Will's fictional parents? <laughs> <laughs> um, I uh, can tell you a little bit about that. Um, <clears throat> I got to Canada, and it didn't. It really spark. We, but we, it was very friendly and sort of fun. But obviously, it was. You know, there was. I was only there for a limited time. So what ended up happening was. I ended up staying, I think I was going to stay with her for two weeks and I ended up staying with her for one week. And then um, I uh, got on a bus and I went to Vancouver through the, you know, the mountains and stuff in Canada and did like a bus mm. trip and then ended up in Vancouver. And I think I've also told this story on the podcast before. It was when I went to see uh, uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, the movie, when that came out. And I mm. went to the opening midnight yeah. screening of it and outside... Uh, the cinema a guy sold me something that he said was acid and I was like well what would Hunter S. Thompson do in this situation he'd buy the acid and take the acid and go and see the movie but I assumed that it probably wasn't acid I was probably just buying a bit of cardboard from a stranger on the street but I just thought it was part of the you know the romance of the story anyway it was acid mm. that movie's really full on <laughs> <laughs> Also, I think the story. I also about the went to. Sorry, Melbourne. can I just say this? I also oh, ended yeah. up on that trip going to the West Edmonton Mall, which is the world's biggest shopping mall. Uh, speaking of submarines, they have more submarines in that mall than the entire Canadian Navy. What? What? They have, what a, do you mean? Uh, they have like, like a full size submarine in the bottom of the mall. The mall is so big that you can just walk around it for days. It has a hotel in it and stuff. But. You said it has more ships than the Navy. No, more submarines, or it's the biggest submarine. It's bigger than the other submarines in the Canadian Navy or some ridiculous stat like that. Oh, okay. But it's, it's not like they have lots of submarines at this mall. They have just the biggest one. I think maybe that's what it was. It was, it was 20 years ago. Right. My memory of this is not great, but I remember there was something about the submarine. <laughs> Where's that town when you drive between Sydney and Melbourne? There's a, isn't there a submarine in one of those towns you stop over? There right? is, the yeah. Island? I can't remember where it yeah. is. But Which one is it? No, I don't know. That's a good, that's a good investment. <laughs> it's like advertising where like, you, you remember the jingle, but you don't know what the product is. It's like, I remember that town. I just don't know what it's called. Yeah, but if Bad you're going through mate. that way and you wanted to see a submarine, there's only one place you can do it. Yeah, it's true. Also, I think the story about the one day in Melbourne could be a great romantic film. Who would be cast as Will? Who would be cast as the Canadian Traveller? Maybe it's best we don't have a resolution, much like Lost in Translation. I could totally see that. That's a great idea, actually. If you're a little indie filmmaker and you want to, you know, don't have... In fact, I am an indie filmmaker. This is me talking to myself. Charlie, <laughs> make a story about a couple in Melbourne. You could do a real... It's a really great idea, Philip. Co uh, copyright TOEFOP. <laughs> I mean, it'd be a really good idea if the movie Before Sunset hadn't come out already. Yeah, well, that's what I was going to say. Is you do like a you do a low rent before sun before is it before which hang on before sunrise oh, before, before sunrise sunri is the first one before dawn before sunrise before sunrise is and the then first one. Um, it's uh, uh, before sunrise from dawn till dusk. That's the fourth one. I I mean we've talked we like Richard Linklater on this show. He's a he's a he's a he's a director we endorse. Him and George Miller, yep. Richard Linklater. <laughs> but I got to say those films are I love them. Like I think they are so good and they did such a great job. 
with that trilogy being truthful. Like the first one is definitely romantic, but that's what your twenties are. You know, you can meet a fucking stranger in a bar and, you know, like you can, you know, con a, a waiter into giving you a bottle of wine and, you know, it's exciting. And then the next phase, 10 years later, where they kind of meet up again and he's got this book that is, oh no, she's got the book that she's, hang on, who wrote the book, her or him? Uh, he did. One of them's written a book. I think it's him. Yeah, I think well, he's he the, writer the writer in real life, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah, I, I and then I, the last well, I, the thing about the last one go on oh and then the last one where they're married and it's like ugh, this is like twenty years later and we're not young and sexy anymore and we have kids and we don't get along like they're so beautifully made those films they feel so they feel so real even though you know you don't identify I don't identify with any of those people it's just like oh yes their lives are real I believe that was it Jesse and Celine is that the two characters names. Yeah, she's definitely Celine. I think he was Jesse. Um, yeah. The thing I was going to say is, I, I now that I'm thinking about this, I'd never kind of made the connection of how similar this night was to that movie. And I wonder if, because when did Before Sunrise come out? No, Mike Hale, can you look about up? About 97. So I think it was 97. This is like basically 1995, right? So this would have been 1997 or 98, I guess. So there's a fair chance that I was just, with my move, ripping off the movie before Sunrise because I had seen yeah. it. And this was, in, this was in your Eddie Vedder era too, wasn't it, where you thought you were Eddie Vedder? Well, there was an era where I was crossing over into thinking I was Ethan Hawke, particularly around that reality bites you know, kind of era. You had the soul patch, didn't you? You had the little soul patch under your bottom lip? <laughs> Did you? Yes, I think you did. I did. Yes, of course you did. <laughs> and I did think that I had like a, you know, and like now that, yeah, we've talked about this before, but now when you rewatch Reality Bites, you're like, oh my God, that Ethan Hawke character is terrible. Such He's a, a terrible person. But like at the time, I strongly identified with that terrible person. And so this would have been two years later. I bet I've ripped off my entire move that night from the, like, I bet that I was like, the reason that I think that I can do this is because I've seen that movie. And so really, if we made a movie about that experience, we'd be making a movie about someone. This is probably the only way we could do it. We'd have to acknowledge at some stage, we do a time period piece. You actually set it in that era and like you reveal at some stage that I've seen the movie uh, before sunrise. Cause that's because otherwise it's too similar a story. Yeah. So that was 95 when that came out. And so you, when, what year did the Canadian girl happen? I'm going to say 97 or 98. Okay, right. So there's plenty of time for it to seep into your consciousness. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, like I think the reason that film works so much is if you've ever traveled, you have those kind of chance encounters where you do. I mean, I don't think you could be sued for it being like a ripoff because it's just, that's, you know, like a relationship that lasts for 20. That's why... I, that's why summer romances or, or holiday romances are so great because you pack in everything into a very short period of time. You go, it's a completely different movie because the sun rises at a different time in Melbourne than it does in Paris, mate. So different film. When I was about the same age as you were when you did that little romantic thing, I, went, I remember I went on a date with a girl in St Kilda and I booked us into a fancy restaurant because I wanted to impress her but I'd never eaten there and I, you know, I was only 19 I'd never eaten in a fancy restaurant before and it was like one of those kind of teen films like Karate Kid or something where we got in and the snooty waiter was like you know excuse me and like and showed us to our chairs and was like had all this attitude and after about 15 minutes this attitude 
I thought in my head, I was like, what would like Dylan McKay from 902 and I do? And so I looked at the girl and I was like, hey, you want to get out of here? And she's like, yeah. And so we went and we got burgers from the shop and we went down to the beach and we sat in the sand in like our fancy date clothes and ate burgers. And then after a while, she was like, I think the restaurant was better. <laughs> You want to get out of here? Yeah. Actually, the first place is better. <laughs> well, maybe you could make a before sunrise like kind of twist on that idea where you try to do all those things that are cheap and romantic, but they constantly fail and are disappointing. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. It just gets worse and worse. Have you seen, uh, there's a film out here at the moment. I'm not sure if it's in Australia yet. I haven't seen it, but I've heard good things called Game Night. No. Um. The premise of the film is that uh, it's a group of friends who get together, you know, every Friday night to have a game night. Okay. And then one night their friend turns up and is like, okay, the game I've brought tonight, it's going to be a fully immersive experience. In five minutes, someone's going to knock on that door and I'm going to be kidnapped. And then, you know, you've got to follow the clues for the rest of the night you know, to find me. And it's one of those kind of, you know, escape room type, uh, right. like, you know, the movie, The Game. But he actually gets kidnapped for real. <laughs> so these, his friends are sort of trailing after him, following these clues to like rescue him. They're kind of annoyed that, you know, they're not just playing Monopoly or Pictionary and stuff. And they get involved in this like huge crime. The trailer looks very funny. Jason Bateman's in it. Uh, your favorite dad from Friday Night Lights. What's his name? Uh, Coach Taylor. Kyle Chandler. <laughs> no, his name is Coach Taylor, Charlie. <laughs> all right. Um, all right. That feels like enough for now. You got you got your bloody you got your bloody laughs. You came here. You heard us not be able to pronounce names and shit. You've sucked enough malaria-infested blood out of us for this week. <laughs> um, if you'd like to support the show, you can go to patreon.com forward slash tofop. Uh, Movement Sunglasses has been very kind to uh, uh, sponsor this episode, but um, we still need to pay for lots of people to get this show up and running. So if you do have a spare dollar, uh, just go to patreon.com forward slash TOEFOP and, 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 and donate, subscribe, whatever you, you choose to do. That helps us out a lot. You can go to tofop.com to check out our other podcasts. Uh, there's a new Willosophy up with Dave Hughes at the moment. Is that right? Yeah, we've uh, actually put four new episodes up in the last sort of two weeks. And we're going to try to do two a week until the end of the comedy festival and then go back into a weekly schedule with Willosophy. But uh, sign up for that, review that. And uh, yeah, look, um, if you contribute to the uh, Tofop uh, Patreon page then um, uh, that obviously helps us, you know, pay um, Mike Howell and everyone for Willosophy and all our other podcasts, our footy podcasts and all those things, all are supported by that one Patreon. Yeah. Um, if you've got lots of money and you want to support our show and you want, like, you got a product or something, just, you know, come talk to us. <laughs> yeah, we are open <laughs> for anything. business. That would be really good. Uh, and the other thing is that um, I am doing shows, obviously. So one good way to support the podcast is come out and see a live show. My show, Will Legal, is uh, on at the Melbourne Comedy Festival at the moment. Come out and see that. That would be really great. I'm having a really uh, good time doing the show and people seem to like it. And then it's going to Perth and Canberra and Sydney and they're all selling pretty quickly. So get on board if you want to come and see uh, one of those shows. Uh, we are present on a Facebook page. We also have a fan group on Facebook called The Tea Room, which is just the single letter T, The Tea Room. 
um, which is, look, I've been popping my head in. I've got to say, I've been enjoying observing your conversations creepily from the corners. Uh, you guys seem to be enjoying the show. I don't know if maybe you're holding back because I've mentioned numerous times that I'm floating in it and checking it out. But, you know, if that's the case, keep it up. I don't want to read any bad stuff about myself. Yeah, exactly. I encourage that. I encourage you holding back in fact, and we'll, saying nice things. In fact, I'm also in fact, constantly looking at this page yeah. that I don't know how to find or what it is. <laughs> We're on Twitter um, individually and as a group. Collectively <laughs> the resigned way you said that. We're on Twitter. I guess. Oh, it feels like it's been a long episode. I don't and know. Has it been long? Or just because we did the ad reads? I I'm feeling tired. It's late in LA. You it's know what? And I've just been here. doing a lot of fucking talking. Like, just so much talking for the last couple of weeks. And I'm so fucking exhausted. So, um, I think this has been... I've been delirious for much of this episode. There were whole times where yeah. I was just giggling at you trying to pronounce things. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I, I, I've got to say, I haven't listened back, but I like this episode. If you're listening this far... Let me just say, it was a pretty good episode. <laughs> I mean, we started sort of like melancholy with all the Gary Shandling stuff and then we just brought in the dicks and it just got better and better. That's my review. Dicks always make it better. <laughs> I'm Charlie Clawson. <laughs> oh, uh, boy. This podcast is part of the Planet Broadcasting Network. Visit planetbroadcasting.com for more podcasts from our great mates. It's not optional. You have to do it. <laughs> we used to go easy on it, but now you have to. Yeah. Yeah.